From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep. We dive deep into our Catholic faith. I'm Andrew Hansen, along with Amber Servany, special guest with us today, Father Scott Snyder, one of our diocesan priests. Father Scott, good to see you. Thanks for coming in on Dive Deep. Glad to. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. Now, Father Scott is here because he has one of the most intriguing, interesting stories of all of our priests in our diocese, really, for that matter, around the world, because you don't see a lot of these. You are a married priest. So the first thing I want to get into, let's we'll talk about your bio in a little bit, but you are pastor at Mother Adores in Vandalia and St. Joseph in Ramsey. So uh, the first thing before we get into, again, the bio and get into your conversion to the Catholic Church, when you go up to people or people come up to you and say, I'm a married priest. Are they like, wait, 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 are, are you sure? Like, what, what's what's people's reaction when you say that to people? Yeah, that generally leads to some really interesting conversations. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, the first question is, are you a Catholic priest? <laughs> they emphasize yes. Catholic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of interesting reactions. So uh, your wife's name is Pam. Do I have that correct? How long have you been married? 30, oh gosh, now I'm going to get this right. (laughs) It will be 30, we were married in 1983, so 37 years this year. Okay. Nice. All right, so let's get into into your background, uh, because obviously you were not Catholic before. Uh, You grew up, um, you converted first to American, the Lutheran Church, if I have that correct, Mm -hmm. uh, and became a minister in that denomination? Yes. uh, um, I grew up in a family that was believing, but we didn't really attend church that much. And I actually wasn't baptized until I was 17 years old. And that was in the uh, Lutheran Church. It was at that time the American Lutheran Church, which has since become part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, And I worked in that church. My first paying gig in the church was (laughs) as a worship leader in our local church. Um, went to work at the national headquarters also after college. Um, uh, and whereabouts? Are you kind of all over the map, getting moving around at this point? This is point? in Minneapolis okay. at this point. And uh, uh, also did Christian education and youth ministry in the Lutheran Church. So did you feel a calling in the Lutheran Church to be a minister, uh, to be kind of you know the head of a, of a local, is it called a parish in the Lutheran Church? More yeah, or less. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. They um, well, actually, yeah. That's kind of a interesting story too, because as pretty much as soon as I started working in the church, as soon as I was baptized, they were people were telling me, you know, Scott, have you ever thought about being a pastor? And, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. <laughs> wow. But after my first year in college, I felt God calling me to ministry. So I actually went to the Lutheran Seminary in St. Paul. At that time, it was called Luther Northwestern. Went there for a year, but for many reasons, left after a year. Went to work uh, in par- in a church in southwestern Minnesota, and uh, uh, was doing Christian education and youth ministry there. Then went to work at a downtown church in Austin, Texas, doing the wow. same kind of thing. And it was at that point that I really started questioning kind of the the Protestant project. I was seeing you know, theological things that were um, kind of troubling to me and um, kind of a, a drift. I, at that point, I wasn't able to really put it into words what it is. I kind of felt like maybe I was too conservative, you know, for the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, um, but came to see that, that it was really a deeper issue than conservative liberal. It was an issue of where is authority 
in the church, you know, because people were putting forward ideas that were not consistent with what we said in the creed every Sunday. And there seemed to be no one who was able to challenge them. And when the challenges would come, there seemed to be no center that was able to say, well, this is what the church believes. This is outside that, you know, it's, it's, uh, does, is not consistent with that. So you're, you're starting to, you know, have those, those thoughts pop into your head. Are you thinking Catholicism right away? I, the, the Catholicism? No, no. As a matter of fact, we, after a while, uh, we did end up leaving the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and we were attending different churches in our neighborhood. Uh, we attended a Pentecostal church for a while, wonderful, wonderful people with very warm and alive faith. And, uh, but that wasn't, that wasn't for us. And we went to a Presbyterian parish in our uh, neighborhood in Austin. And um, again, very uh, warm and welcoming and evangelical, you know, kind of a parish. Uh, but still, it was at that point that I came to see that this wasn't a Lutheran problem, this kind of drift that I was feeling. But it was really a problem with the Protestant project. Um, to kind of make a long story short, I, I uh, well, while we were in Austin, I was feeling God calling me back to um, uh, ordained ministry. So we were attending a Presbyterian parish. I was not feeling comfortable with the, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, which was the, the mainline Protestant Presbyterian denomination. But I, I really felt that God was calling me back to ministry. So I went to the Presbyterian Seminary in Austin, but I made a deal with God. I said, God, you got this year <laughs> to show me where you want me to minister. You make a deal with God. Yeah, you know, he's, I'm he, definitely going to try that. <laughs> <laughs> so a um, number of things led me to discovering the National Association of Congregational Christian Churches, which is a small um, association of churches. Um, you're probably familiar with the United Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. That was formed in the 19, early 1960s by the merger of the Evangelical and Reformed Church and the General Conference of Congregational Churches. They became the United Church of Christ. Well, there was a group of congregational churches that decided they didn't want to be part of this merger. And so they formed the National Association. I heard about them, and I figured, well, you know, they, they don't make creedal statements. They basically are an association of autonomous parish churches that work together on missions and evangelization and um, ministry development, that kind of thing, development of, of pastors and things like that. So I thought, well, if I go with them, at least I won't be having to make apologies for some strange statement that's coming down from a national office, denominational mm -hmm. office somewhere. But I quickly discovered that uh, that is not God's intention for his church, that all, we'd be all these little independent, you know, satellite offices, you know, the, that, that are doing our own thing and only coming together sporadically. Would it be fair to say as you're, I'll call it shopping around at this point, you're just, you're feeling this just emptiness or just not fulfillment every time you, you pop in a church, you're exploring a different denomination. There's just something there that just doesn't feel satisfying. Well, 
it's, uh, I guess it was, it was not so much any problem with any particular church that I was, that we would become a part of, you know, like I said, I had no doubt in my mind that these, that the people that we were with were Christians, you know, and I could pray with them and, and we could work together for the kingdom, but, but it was a, a larger issue, you know, that issue of how do we hold on to the apostolic faith? And so, um, you know, when I was a pastor, that was, you know, and, you know, in my own little parish, um, I could, I could say, you know, this is what we say in the creed. This is what we believe. This is what we live. But I couldn't always count on that happening in the wider church. Gotcha. You know what I mean? So, so as you're exploring here, now take us to how you found Catholicism and, and what went through your mind and was there this then aha moment? Yeah. So through this whole process, you know, I was looking at, at other options. My first church as a congregational minister was up on the Canadian border of Minnesota. If you ever look at a map of Minnesota, there's a little piece of Minnesota that juts up into Canada. That's called the Northwest Angle. And there's a little town right at the base of it, the only American port on Lake of the Woods, and it's called War Road. And that's where my uh, first first church was as a congregational minister. Huh. While I'm there, I'm meeting with a Lutheran pastor. Uh, for you don't prayer. sound Canadian at all, by the way. So uh, you successfully got well, you don't have the accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a function of my upbringing in the military because I've grown up in every region of the country. So I don't have much of an accent, unless I put one on. I could do lots of accents. So. You didn't say, well, so I went up to Minnesota. So I went to Minnesota, eh? Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty good. Oh, take off. <laughs> All right. So yeah, so you're up there and... Uh, and I'm meeting with this Lutheran minister for prayer and just kind of mutual accountability and support and a uh, great guy. And um, we were, he was looking at becoming Catholic. And I had been uh, looking at the Eastern Orthodox churches. He had lots of information and books and stuff on the Orthodox churches that he shared with me. And, um, you know, we, we, we had kind of a mutual understanding or feeling about where the churches, the Protestant churches were going, that, uh, this concern. As we were, as we had been doing this, eventually I took another call to a, church in Quincy, Illinois. Uh, First Union Congregational Church in Quincy, wonderful church, great historical church. Um, Been on that corner there for 185 years or something like that in Quincy. Um, And so I just kind of put all of that on the back burner as I went to this new church. Well, I'd been there for about a year, and I got a call from uh, the Antiochian Orthodox Church. I'd been, I'd actually been talking with them a little bit. You've named so many churches I've never heard of. I can't even, I'm going to make a list here. (laughs) It's incredible. I want to ask you really quick before you, do we uh, need footnotes? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So as you were going through this journey, your, your wife, Pam, is she supportive? Is she also having doubts or is she, what's, what's, what's that dynamic like? Every step of the way we've gone together. Um, yeah, I, every thought that I've had about all of this, you know, has been something that we've thought through together. And so did she start as Lutheran? Is that, yes, yeah, is that she, okay? yeah, she was born and raised Lutheran okay. in the Lutheran church in America Add another name to the list, <laughs> which you know, the American Lutheran church was kind of the Norwegian 
American church. The Lutheran church in America is kind of the Swedish American church. <laughs> and so uh, they both came together to form the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Wow. You certainly know your history. Okay, so, yeah. you're, so now you're in Quincy. What, what, yes. uh, what year is this? And, and, and then go from there. Oh, my gosh. What year was this? This was about 2001 when we are, uh, we've been in Quincy for a year. The Antiochians call me up and say, Scott, you know, we've had this conversation before, but we'd love to welcome you in. And I said, no, I'm, I'm kind of new in this new church that I'm serving. I really, I really can't be messing around with this stuff. So, so uh, I, I said goodbye to them. And, but that kind of put the thought back in my head again, you know, about is this really what God wants his church to be? You know, and so that started the process again of me thinking about this. And as we thought about it, it kind of crystallized for us what the real issues were. You know, the real issue was where is authority in the church? And we came to the conclusion that the reason that the Protestant churches couldn't hold on to and be centered on the apostolic faith was because they didn't have the apostolic office which is the office of the bishops. That's what bishops do. Mm -hmm. That's their reason for existence, is to pass on the apostolic faith that they have received, uh, and that's the gift that they're given. You know, that's the spiritual gift that they're given, to be the, the channels of that apostolic faith for the church through every generation. So you guys, obviously, then the bell goes off of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And so you go, you have to go through the RCIA process. And, 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 and what happened there with you and your wife? Yes. Um, you know, and actually for Pam, too, is a slightly, she helped me see another aspect of this issue, too, uh, the issue of Christian unity. Um, the little town that I was in, that we were in up in Minnesota, was about 1,500 people. And there were 13 Protestant churches. Wow. You know, two of those churches had developed from splits that came off of the church that I pastored up there. Wow. Fortunately, not while I was there. But um, so that raised the question for us, you know, why is it so hard for the Protestant churches to stick together, to hang together? Because there are dozens of pair of new denominations coming into existence every week mm -hmm. and dozens going out of existence every week. So where is the unity there? Jesus, one of Jesus's prayers for his church was that we would be one. So why is that not happening? Well, it's because just like with the question of authority, the Protestant churches don't have the apostolic office. They also don't have the office of unity, which is the Pope. He is the visible sign of unity in the church. And so uh, that's what made us then think, maybe we need to become Catholic so that we could be in communion with that visible source of unity in the church. So as you're going through this process, so now, so now you're, you've made the decision that we're going to become Catholic. Is there anything in your head that says, but I also want to be a priest? Um, I knew that it was a possibility from the beginning, but once we both determined that, you know, this is the truth, this is what God wants his church to be, then we pretty much had to say, but we got to be there then. Okay. So you became Catholic in 2003 mm -hmm. um, and you're still living in Quincy at, at this time. Yes. So, so now, now take us through the, the thought process of the Holy spirit putting in your mind, Scott, I'm calling you to be a priest. And yeah. then of course now 
going to Bishop Paprocki, was then Bishop Lucas at the time? Bishop Lucas. Bishop Lucas. And then that conversation. Yeah. And, and what did you end up doing in the meantime? You go to Catholicism, like that left you jobless, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a tough time. And that, that time probably was harder on Pam than it was on me. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, we determined that we needed to be in the Catholic Church. And so I talked to the elders of my church and told them, this is what we're doing. We're becoming Catholic. And uh, I had to give them three months' notice. And I thought, this is going to be the hardest three months of my life. Mm. But it turned out to be really a beautiful opportunity because I could— uh, I, after the people had the time to get over their initial shock, <laughs> uh, they could come to me and say, Scott, why are you doing this? And I could tell them that it's not because I don't think that you are Christian. You know, I know that there are many people in that church and in every church that I've ever been involved with that are a lot more holy than I am. But the thing is that all of the gifts that God wants to give to his church all of the things that God wants his church to be are present in the Catholic church. So when you said that, because that was a really powerful thing you just said there, your congregation at that time, did you think any of them, did any of them, them, those thoughts started to go through their head and and they maybe converted to Catholicism? No, no, no. Um, And there's part of me that's really glad for that because I would have hated to have been the death of a historic church like First Union Congregational Church. And I would have hated to have brought discord to that to that church. I love those people. When we go back to Quincy, we still stay with people from mm. that, from our old church. So uh, wonderful, wonderful people. Um so, so again, so you're in Quincy, yeah. so you're kind of making ends meet, you and Pam, and then yeah, all of a sudden- Yeah, I went the, to uh, work at a grocery store in town. Assuming County Market? Yeah. I mean, of course, you, you got to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really quick, my great-grandfather started County Market. Really? Yeah, that's right. The ne- Neiman Foods. Yes, right? absolutely. Yep, so my grandmother uh, is the daughter of, obviously, the great-grandfather who started County Market. It was Neiman Foods at the time, obviously, transitioned to County Market. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you look like a Neiman now that I think about it. <laughs> I got the red hair. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of Neimans with uh, and Quincy with, with red hair. Yeah, wonderful uh, family over in uh, Edwardsville, the, the Foppies. I don't know the Foppies. Uh, they're... You don't know your own family, <laughs> Andrew. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, pin it on me. That's my bad. Oh my gosh! All right, so you're working at County Market now. Uh, some priest, some priest uh, thoughts start popping in your head. Yeah, I was working at County Market, and then I went to work briefly for a fundraising company, and I was commuting to Detroit. <laughs> from Quincy every week. So that didn't last very long. But uh, then I uh, went to work actually um, as a pastoral associate in a parish on the north side of Chicago. Hmm. And so I was doing Christian education, youth ministry, uh, marriage preparation, RCIA, yay, RCIA, and uh, uh, lots of different different ministries in a in St. Gregory the Great Parish on the north side of Chicago. Oh. And I was there for uh, eight years altogether. Wow. Um, but uh, 
a really cool thing happened while we were at St. Gregory the Great. Um, we received a grant to develop our ministry team. And in addition to the uh, monies that were given for developing programs in the parish, each member of the, of the pastoral team got to have some money for their own personal development. So I got permission from my pastor, God bless him, to do the 30-day Ignatian silent retreat. Mm. And so I did that at the Jesuit Retreat Center uh, in uh, California, um, in the Bay Area. I can't remember. Um, it's near Mountain View. Anyway, um, and, I, and that was the question I brought to my 30-day retreat. Was Should I pursue priesthood? Okay. And you finished the 30 days with the answer of yes. yes. Okay. So came back, got uh, with... So, okay, so hold on. So you go to Pam, you go, you go home and you tell, you say, Pam, um, I want to be a priest and her reaction. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Pretty much. She had been a minister, she, yeah. minister's wife. So. Is she already a saint? Is, is Can we call oh, her St. Pam at this you point? Know, she, well, uh, one thing I do know, she has nothing left on her purgatory chart. I tell you. <laughs> I don't think we have a patron saint of wives of priests. So there she's, hmm. she, she, there's just throwing that out there. I'd have to. <laughs> Looked into that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so now you're in Chicago. So you you, why, you you come back to the Diocese of Springfield for a reason? Well, we felt like this is where God started our Catholic journey. And so this is where we need to see if this is um, this is where God wants us to be. And, and so you approach Bishop Lucas, and how'd that conversation go? He was immediately supportive. Um, we began the process of receiving the necessary permissions from the Vatican. Um, I had to have permission to begin studies. I had to have permission afterwards, uh, after I completed my studies for ordination also. And that was kind of fun too. The permission to begin studies, I started studies in uh, 2008. And uh, the permission came from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Then I completed studies, and we, we waited for a little while after I completed my studies to get permission, and that had to be approved by Pope Benedict personally. <laughs> so all the guys at seminary are saying, wow, Pope Benedict knows your name. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Yeah, so. That's legit. So you were ordained, what year were you ordained? 2012. 2012, okay. So, um, so you've now been a priest for several years, of, of course. Um What's it like, the big grand question, what's it like being a married priest? It's, it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. And it's been, uh, and it, I think probably in some ways it's been easier for Pam. I hate to talk, to speak for Pam, but uh, in some ways it's probably been easier for Pam because in Protestant churches, there are a lot of expectations that come with the minister's wife. Not so much as anymore as it used to be, but you know, if you were the minister's wife, you you know played the organ and led the Sunday school and the women's organization, and there was all these expectations of you. But nobody knows what to do with Pam now. <laughs> <laughs> She's just praying for everyone, which is probably more important. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, of course, Father Scott, the the issue of married priest celibacy. Um, this is something. It's actually the 12th century. So, pretty prior to the 12th century, priests were allowed to be married. And, and the big thing that I think people forget is this is a discipline. This is a church discipline. Therefore, it is not church doctrine. Thereby, obviously, Father Scott can be married. 
Um, but for the most part, obviously, this is 99.9% of priests are celibate priests. We saw in the Amazon Synod this this issue come up, and the church has been talking about this for several years, even prior to that. So first of all, what are your thoughts on the general uh, a priest should be allowed to marry and not be celibate? Well, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I think, you know, um, it's more and more um, being... Uh, recognized and brought forward what a gift celibacy is to the church. And um, the the discipline didn't come about lightly, and we shouldn't dismiss it lightly. Um, in, in my particular case, and in the case of, of clergy who come in from other denom- Christian denominations, um, it's, it's an exception. You know, it, it began as a pastoral uh, way to reach out and to help, uh, Protestant uh, ministers who came into the church. It started actually shortly after World War II. In the early 1950s, there was a group of German Lutheran pastors who petitioned Pope Pius XII to be to come into the church and to be able to function as priests. And he granted that on a one-time thing. Then mm-hmm. under St. Paul the 20, Paul VI, um, there were more mostly from the uh, Episcopalian Church, the Anglican churches. And so there was a process that was developed to help them to come in. And then later on, that process continues to develop. Ministers from other denominations come in. Pope Benedict XVI uh, creates the Anglican Ordinariate, you know, which greatly facilitates not just priests, but whole communities coming in. Uh, to the church and being able to hold on to some of their liturgical traditions as well. All of these were exceptions to the rule uh, of celibacy, which has has never been uh, questioned. Uh, And so uh, my feeling is that with the Amazon Synod, it's going to be a similar, a similar, if, if that's the, Mm. the, way the church decides to go, it's going to be a similar thing. It will be an exception. It will not replace the rule of celibacy. So you see, you see tremendous value. Values may be the wrong word, but uh, in, in celibacy for, for our priests. Most definitely. Most definitely. You know, it is, uh, we see um, uh, the value of celibacy expressed in scripture. You know, Paul, St. Paul talks about, uh, you know, him giving up his right to be accompanied by a wife. In uh, his first letter to the Corinthians, he, he talks about it, uh, that uh, the other apostles, you know, travel around with wives, but he has given that up, you know, for the sake of the church, which is what celibacy means. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm just this bachelor running around. It means that I have surrendered my rights in certain respects for the good of the church. And so... Um, you know, that, that value comes from apostolic times. Um, we do recognize also, though, that as Paul himself says in that first letter to the Corinthians, the other apostles were married. So um, it wasn't until the, the midi- Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, that that became the universal rule for the, the Latin church. And, and I look at, you know, that issue kind of from a practical side, too. So, you know, if you're allowed, for priests are allowed to be married, uh, let, let's be honest, there's a financial burden to the parish of now adding a spouse. Maybe if there's two priests, you have to have two houses because obviously one, you know, you can't have a married couple and a single guy 
or maybe perhaps another married couple living in the same house. That seems like that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, health insurance costs. Also from, you know, I just look at, I look at our priests and, and, you know, God bless them. They work their butts off. I mean, you have to be available for confessions and church and funerals. And at 2 a.m. in the morning, you get a phone call to, you know, issue uh, the sacrament of, of last rites for someone who's dying and RCIA and the list goes on. You run in a parish school. I mean, holy cow, that's a lot of stuff and a lot of responsibility. And, um, you know, I kind of want to get your thoughts on there's this, I don't want to say juggling act, but someone, if, if you, I think if you just open the floodgates and you're allowed all these priests to marry at some point, some, either the parish might suffer a bit or the spouse may suffer a bit because a priest is just getting pulled in two different directions. Mm-hmm. You, you, you kind of, you see that now, now you're, just, you're, you're a married priest here. So I want you to kind of maybe, maybe debunk maybe what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I guess I kind of, I think that that is the weakest argument for okay. celibacy um, because um, no priest has the strength to do this job on his own. It's not because I am such a great person that I'm able to do what I'm able to do in the church. It's the gift that comes from the Holy Spirit at my ordination that makes it possible to do this. Um, And, you know, the other thing, something that I think about, too, is, you know, we talk about the spiritual fatherhood of the priest. Well, is... Speaking about natural fatherhood, is the father of one child a better father than the father of four children? Hmm. I, I don't think so. Right. You know, um, being a father, either naturally or spiritually, is uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're able to be a good father because. God gifts you with what you need to be a father to your children, either spiritual or natural. And um, so I think that that, that question of, of uh, you know, being pulled in two, being different, pulled directions. In two different directions, I, I, you know, yeah, it's, it's true. Um, and without, uh, uh, you know, a, a partner that is, that has spiritual depth to her too, it would be very difficult. But fortunately, Pam's a lot holier than I am. So, um. and, and the other, the other thing I think people throw out there, if you allow married priests, we have, we, you know, we have a quote priest shortage, this will solve the problem. Well, there might be a little bit of an uptick, but the truth of the matter is most Protestant denominations are also experiencing shortages of ministers. Um, so, it, that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, it's, it seems to me when I when I talk to most seminarians, it's it's the celibacy or not not being able to marry is an issue. Isn't an issue. They they want to be a priest. They just they want to be a priest. Period. It's the idea of answering a vocation. Correct. Yeah. It's not a job. It's not this other thing that you do. It's that I'm choosing this in my life. And so there's no real muddying the waters there when you well do that. even more than that. It's not I'm choosing this for my right. life. God God's has chosen it. me for right. this. And so God is going to empower me to do, right. to do this. So, so, um, when you, do you feel like you, uh, when you're talking with your parishioners, obviously you have like, you have a, a background working in the quote real world and, and you're married, uh, you're able to connect maybe a little bit more. Again, I don't know that that's so true either. You know, um, I think it's probably a good thing that, 
that uh, in many ways, at least, the, that most guys are coming to uh, begin their formation in the priesthood at, at a later, a little bit later age, you know, not as old as me, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, you know, they, most guys today do have a little bit more life experience than maybe they did in the past. So, and, and hopefully they have some dating experience too. You know, that's good for a young man. That's good for clarifying, uh, vo- their vocation, you know? Um, but, um, I think what you just said is, is important that, you know, kind of to your point, Amber, all of our priests have gifts and life experiences that, you know, we shouldn't get caught up necessarily in, uh, well, he worked in the real world, so I can act on you. Father Scott was married, I can, or is married, I can connect with him, or, you know, he did this. So it, it's, you know, we, they all, you all have your different gifts, just like individually, we all have our different life experiences. So should we, we shouldn't get caught up in, in the, you know, what a person's background is and how I can connect with yeah, them. Yeah, the, the greatest gift that your gift, that your priest is going to give to you when you come with to him with an issue in life is not his experience of it, but what God has to say about it. Mm-hmm. It's the spiritual, um, what am I trying to say? Spiritual blessing. Yeah, it's it's to help God help you to see these things from the perspective of God and the richness of our tradition, not just you know oh I've gone through that so I can commiserate with you. No, we have the wisdom of ages here. Mm-hmm. We have the 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 gift of the Holy Spirit that when we pray, He's going to do something about this problem. And and as a priest, I can bring that to you, whatever my experiences are in life. So my I guess my final question for you: So you've been a priest. Uh... Looking back on your journey, do you, I'm assuming you kind of laugh and, and you know, how everything panned out and, oh, and what's it like being a priest and as, as how much joy you get out of it? Oh, man, it's it is it's the best thing ever. You know, from day one, we were we've been so happy being Catholic. And every week we go, we discover something else that we're so glad for that we discover in the Catholic Church. And so. Yeah, we're we're just very happy. That's awesome. That's a perfect way to end. Father nice. Scott, thanks for coming in. Interesting story, interesting vocation. If you'd like more podcasts, go to dio.org slash podcast, and we will see you next time here on Dive Deep.